The book of James, James chapter 1. Last week we began with an introduction to this series and to this book. And today uh, we're going to jump into James chapter 1. Uh, the title for this sermon is Humble Faith Stands the Test. And we're going to talk about um, the blessing of trials. And I just want to get out ahead of it and say I did not plan for this sermon to be preached on my 12th wedding anniversary. I just want to say that up front. James chapter 1. Please stand if you found it in your Bibles. It's also printed, I believe, in your bulletin. This is God's Word. James 1, 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word now, uh, sanctify us by it. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace as we consider what it is to stand in the midst of trials looking to you for wisdom. Give us your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know you and love you and follow you more and more each day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You know, it was David Powlison uh, who once said that it's obvious from both Scripture and experience that God never establishes a no-fly zone keeping all problems away. I kind of wish he would, though, sometimes. A no-fly zone for problems, pain, suffering, heartache, trials. A no-fly zone sounds pretty nice. Uh, John Newton, whom we probably know best as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, wrote to a friend and told him about a conversation he had with this woman who had lost her house in a fire. The letters of John Newton, by the way, are amazing. If you ever have the chance to read them, do it. They're accessible, full of grace, uh, just really rich gospel truths in his letter. So he's writing this letter to a friend about this woman who had lost all of her earthly possessions in a fire. He says, I went to visit her. And when he arrived and found this acquaintance of his, uh, she was in tears. Uh, what do you think Newton would say to this woman? He said, Madam, I have come to congratulate you. How would you feel about that? Here you are experiencing an immensely difficult time in your life. You've just lost everything. You're going through trials unlike anything you've ever experienced. 
And here's this guy who comes up and says, congratulations. What would you think about that? I know some of you are thinking it. You don't have to say it out loud. You know, Thanks, you jerk. Why would you say that? I'm in the middle of the worst moment in my life. She said, what? Upon the destruction of my property? No, Newton said to this woman, but to cheer you up because you possess property which nothing can destroy. With a twinkle in his eye, Newton encourages this woman with the property, the amazing riches, the treasure, the safety and security that she has in Jesus. And he tells his friend in this letter, this awakened a surprise and a smile in her tears like a sunshine in the showers of April. Some of us have shed tears recently. Uh, Some of you are facing incredible trials. Our church sure has. Uh, Some of you are staring down anniversaries of trials, of sadness. Uh, Not unlike Newton, James catches us off guard in this passage where he tells us trials are a good thing. tells us to welcome them. My hope this morning is that by looking at what James says, it could, in Newton's words, awaken a smile and a surprise in our own tears as we face trials. Uh, What I want you to take away from this sermon is just this encouraging news that because Christ joyfully endured the cross, we can joyfully stand the test of trials. Because Christ joyfully endured the cross, we too can joyfully endure the test of trials. I want to look at this under three headings. Uh, First, the reason we experience trials. Second, the readiness of God to give wisdom. And finally, the reward that's greater than earthly riches. So let's look at this first important thing we must know as we face trials, as we stand the test of trials. The reason we experience trials. We find this in James 1, 3-4. He begins the body of his letter with these thought-provoking words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Just think about that for a minute. Think about it. Doesn't it strike you as a little bit odd? We're so used to hearing these Bible verses. We've memorized them. Wouldn't this be a weird way to start a letter? A weird way to uh, begin hearing what James is telling you? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. You might be like that woman to Newton who says, what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You might think, why in the world would I do that? That's the last thing I would think to do. James tells us that this is because the various kinds of trials that we face, they're given for a reason. The reason is to test our faith in order to produce perseverance in us. They're an expected part of the Christian life. We know this by experience. Jesus told us this. In this world, you will have trouble. John 16, 33. It's just that simple. In this world, you will have trouble. In fact, if anyone is aware of this reality, it's James's audience, these first readers of his letter. Why is that? Why would these first readers be more than aware that they could expect trials? Well, James addresses his letter in verse 1, if you'll look there with me, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Some translations, maybe the one you're reading, go with uh, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Uh, But James is actually using a proper noun here. Uh, The diaspora, or in English, the dispersion. It's this technical term that was used uh, for the nation of Israel in exile. Scattered among the nations. It was used for the nation of Israel for the Jewish people who during the time of the Roman occupation were then scattered through persecution. Local persecutions. 
and it was referred to as the Diaspora. By the time uh, James writes his letter, uh, the nations among which these people lived were known as the Diaspora. It's almost a geographical reference. Why does any of this matter? Well, James uses this term along with other clues throughout the letter uh, to lead us to this idea that James is writing to uh, Jewish Christians. It makes sense because this letter was written in the earliest days of the church. Uh, We've seen James was a prominent early church leader, maybe the foremost among the apostles. This would be one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And many of these Christians have been displaced from their homeland by persecution for their faith, this newfound faith in the Messiah. They have been sent away from their homeland. They are experiencing uh, what it is to suffer in the Christian life. You can see some examples of this in Acts 8, Acts 11, where they're scattered among the nations, but they're known as the diaspora. The reason I take time to highlight this is because I think it helps us consider what this message has to do with us today. Uh, for one thing, isn't it oddly reassuring that in the very, perhaps the very first letter penned of the New Testament, uh, we read, and maybe the very first thing the guy has to say is, you're going to have trials. I think, man, for thousands of years, we've all been in the same boat as believers. There hasn't been this time when Christians don't face trials. In this world, you will face trouble. I think that's some encouragement to us. And I think it's encouraging to think about what it's like when real hard persecution comes. The persecution followers of Christ face in this country are quite different from the trials that these people were facing. Uh, I think everywhere, at any given time, anyone is on the verge of circumstances like that. We can't assume that this could never happen to us. But by and large, we face a much different kind of persecution. Whatever the case may be, uh, the reasons that Christians experience trials in general and the ways we persevere through them is the same. And that's what James wants to explain to his readers. So look at verses 2 and 3 with me. What is the reason? Why do we experience trials? Trials test the Christian's faith in order to produce perseverance. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The ESV, which we're using, reads, when you meet trials. James wrote something maybe more like falling into trials. It's kind of the idea. Uh, It's not an item on your agenda. You don't set up a meeting with this trial. Put it into your calendar on your phone. This is when I'm going to experience this trial. You just fall into these trials. It just happens. It befalls you. Maybe an old English word would capture it best. Our ongoing trials, the ones that we know about, they take unexpected turns. We don't know how exactly these things are going to play out. But the trials aren't senseless, even though they may seem random in our lives as we experience them. Unexpected. The persecution these first readers face isn't haphazard. It hasn't taken God by surprise. It's part of God's plan to make their faith persevere. Know, James says, know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He aims to teach them here, to press home to them the, the, this word of assurance about their trials. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's to produce perseverance in you. The Christian life is like a race. And as we'll see at the end of our passage this morning, uh, there's a prize awaiting us at the finish line. These trials are the resistance in your training program for that race. 
If you've, if you've ever tried to get in shape, or maybe you're an athlete and you've spent a lot of time working out, uh, you know something about this resistance. You add another rep to the set, another lap on your route, more weight on the bar. Uh, some of us might be groaning already because we've buckled under that kind of resistance and we've given up. But if you keep at it, you keep going, uh, what happens? Your body is trained to get better and better at pushing through and it's strengthened with this end goal in view. You're physically improved with the ability to handle more resistance the next time around. The resistance against your body and against your will produces perseverance. But unlike an exercise regimen, when we muscle through in our own strength and by our own willpower, uh, trials are not that kind of thing. We don't go through trials in our own strength and by our own willpower. Trials are not a test of our own personal resolve, but of our faith in the person of Christ. That's what trials are for. Remember Christ's promise. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. What incredibly reassuring words. Do you believe that? Is our faith in Christ and in His victory such that we may be steadfast to persevere in the midst of trials? As trials produce this perseverance in us, this testing of our faith, it completes and perfects us as Christians. It makes us complete, full. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Of course, there's always room to grow and to uh, deepen our relationship and our walk and the graces that are ours in Christ. But this is what these trials uh, work in us. They work us toward this fullness, this completion. James would remind us that we still mess up. James 3 verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. But we can, in fact, become perfect and complete in this sense that our faith has been tested and strengthened so that it may persevere. We're still going to mess up like a bad cold that just hangs on. Sin and its effects linger with us long after we come to Christ. If you haven't realized that, you haven't been a Christian very long. It's the way it is. And often the great physician uses the medicine of trials to make us whole and complete. To quote Newton again, he compared our unwillingness to accept trials in our lives to a patient who objects to any medicine that tastes unpleasant or has unpleasant side effects. And Newton observed that the best medicines, and I'm just thinking of the medicines they used in his day, are usually the most unpleasant, and that dangerous and inveterate diseases are seldom cured by cakes and candies. I wish that were true. <laughs> Hold the Robitussin, pass the candy jar, right? That's not the way it works. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James' reason for trials. That's why we experience trials. They test our faith in the person of Christ in order to produce perseverance in us, which in turn will complete us as followers of Christ, will make us full and complete. But what do we do when we just don't know what to do? Okay, that's the reason for trials. But in the experience of trials, haven't you ever just wondered, what in the world do I do now? What am I supposed to do in this moment? Well, that's the second point of our text, if you look with me at verses 5 to 8. The readiness of God to give wisdom. 
Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Here we find that God stands ready to give wisdom to those who ask him for wisdom. He just gives wisdom to the person who asks him for it. Can it really be that simple? Maybe you're a parent and you've seen your child struggle to overcome some obstacle, either as a kid or maybe as a teenager or maybe even beyond as a young adult, maybe a not-so-young adult, and you stood ready to show them the way if they would just simply ask. That's God standing ready to give us wisdom. You remember uh, young George Bailey in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas classic. It's a tradition in the Warren family household growing up. Remember the one time he was faced with this problem where he's working for the pharmacist and the pharmacist mixed up the medicine. It was going to be dangerous for this client. And he didn't know what to do. So he looks up at the wall and he sees this tin, this, you know, this tin advertisement that said, Ask Dad, he knows. So what does he do? He runs down to his dad's office because he's worried about what's going to happen if they deliver this medicine. And what happens next? Well, if you've seen the movie... His dad loves him dearly, but he just has no time for George. That will never happen with God. That's what this text is telling us. Ask dad, he knows. And he stands ready at all times to give generously to all without reproach. He's not going to wag his finger at you and say, that was a stupid question. He's not standing ready to begrudge you. Man, here he comes again. Didn't I give you wisdom the last time you were going through something like this? That's not the father that we serve. There's one condition, though, one qualifying characteristic to receive wisdom from God. Verses 6 through 8 say, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's no surprise, is it? Uh, If trials are this test of faith, then crying out to God uh, in the midst of trials has to begin with faith. That's the point here. It's not perfection. It's not you never do anything wrong, but your faith is fixed singularly on God. You're not double-minded. You're not looking uh, to the world sometimes and to God at other times for wisdom. Your faith is fixed on Him. Like I talked with the kids a moment ago, you know, I explained this picture of the wave being blown and tossed on the sea. You can picture that in your mind, right? That's this double-mindedness. When he says this, this kind of person is unstable, he doesn't mean mental instability like we might think about it today. He means essentially to be fickle. To be fickle. As someone has described it, a prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire, the doubter wants wisdom from God one day, and wisdom from the world the next. But humble faith that recognizes who God is, humble faith lives according to God's wisdom, and it returns over and over again to God to ask Him for wisdom. So God is ready to give wisdom so that the testing of our faith in the person of Christ can produce perseverance as we endure, living out that wisdom. Through this, we are made complete full as Christians, not lacking in anything we need to live life to God's glory. So that's the reason for trials. That's the readiness of God to give wisdom, and we definitely need that in the middle of trials. But there's a third point that we can see here in James. This is in verses 9 through 12, and it's the reward that is greater than earthly riches. Look with me in your Bibles to verses 9 to 12. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You may have noticed that verse 12 returns to this idea of perseverance in trials. It's sort of this bookend. It's always helpful to look for these bookends in Scripture. Uh, It's a good clue that everything the author has written between these two bookends hangs together as a unit. He's talking about trials, and now he's holding out to us the reward for those who persevere in trials. He wants to give this example of humble faith standing the test and what it looks like in practice. Uh, The whole idea of the poor and the rich seems like it kind of comes out of nowhere, Uh, like it doesn't really fit in these bookends of perseverance in trials, but it really does fit James' message uh, in this part of the letter when you stop and think about it. Uh, In James, the rich are not always spoken of as members of the church. Later in James, we'll get to a time when he refers to these rich oppressors of God's people. But that doesn't seem to be be what's happening here. It seems to be here that he's talking about people who enjoy uh, great blessing from God as believers, and they have wealth, and also talking about those who are of more humble means within the body of Christ. He's not saying here, see, when you go through hard times, just be glad you're not like the rich guy, because this is what's going to happen to him. No, I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's addressing both the lowly brother and the rich brother and instructing them to consider uh, their true condition before the Lord. He wants to encourage them to set their eyes on the reward that awaits those who persevere and not on their circumstances. The lowly exalted and the rich humbled. And we see here the upside down nature of God's kingdom, at least in the eyes of worldly wisdom. It's not the way it works in the world. Uh, James encourages the lowly brother to consider his true wealth. Let's look at that first. His truly high position. We notice in Christ's words to, to the church of Smyrna in Revelation. Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. But what does he say next? Yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. One writer observes here that the lowly brother might be considered, in the words of Paul, uh, the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. But not so in the sight of God. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious home in heaven. I think that's what James is getting at here. That's worth glorying in. That's worth boasting in. Even when in our trials we look around and we feel like we don't have much. Of course, all of that is true of the rich brother as well. But he has that plus abundance, earthly abundance. And that could be a problem. It certainly is a danger. So James tells these rich brothers to remember that earthly riches are fleeting. They're temporary. They don't last long. He reminds the rich brother that nothing that he can amass on earth will prevent the inevitable, like the flower of the grass and all of its riches will one day pass away. That doesn't happen very easily in Virginia, I'm noticing. (laughs) 
it rains so much that the grass grows overnight. I spent some time in Israel when I was in college. Uh, I was there from late January to uh, early May. And I had a chance to see how the desert regions in southern Israel just blossom when, when the rain comes through. Uh, there are these flowers. I don't remember the kind of flower. They were a purple flower and just grass blossoming out of rocks and dirt and sand uh, in the early spring. It's beautiful. I just remember getting off our bus headed to see this location. It was like a wall of scent. You just, it's just striking. But it, it's so amazing, you can almost forget for a moment that you're in the middle of an arid desert. And as soon as the arid winds of May come, they dry out all of those tender flowers, all of those beautiful uh, wildflowers, and it is once again a desert. And that's the picture here. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Something we all need to remember. Knowing this, the rich brother is reminded to put his faith in the word of the Lord because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's easy to ride out trials when the rest of our life is reasonably comfortable. But if we remember what James says about our creature comforts and the riches that God has given some, then we would put our faith in God and not our comfort, not our stability, not our personal assets, not our securities. James writes about the reward that awaits both the rich brother and the poor one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, verse 12, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the reason we experience trials is for our faith to be tested. Uh, God is ready to give us wisdom whenever we need it to persevere through these trials. But what's the reward? What are we running towards? What are we aiming at? What do we get at the end of this? The crown of life. When James writes the crown of life, he's not talking about a clunky medieval crown with jewels on it. Uh, I was thinking about Prince John in the 1970s Robin Hood. You know, this crown that's too big for his head. You may have heard sometimes you know, about things in the Christian life. That's another jewel for your crown. That's not the kind of crown we're talking about here. Uh, this is from the world of athletics. This would be like the gold medal of our time. This is the victor's wreath, the crown placed upon the victor's head. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. That's what James is talking about here. Remember uh, what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. We, we told them that, we, I mentioned that he told them, you are rich despite what you think. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. We find this crown symbolism in the Bible, but only, only in these couple of places is it referred to as the crown of life. So what does this mean? It's like the victory wreath placed on the Christian's head at the end. It's the eternal life. It's this word picture because James is a master at word pictures. It's this picture of what we receive at the end of all of the trials we run through in life. Humble faith can be assured that God will be true to his promise to give us life in his son because he has loved us by giving us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. By humble faith that doesn't try to earn this, but simply receives God's gift of life, 
by faith in his son. That's the kind of faith that is that, that we, we are forgiven by, we are justified by, and promised life to come by. This is our hope. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 1-5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and hope in the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. With this love of God poured out in our hearts, armed with the endurance and character that trials produce within us, we can hope in the glory of God and know that that crown of life is awaiting us no matter what we're going through today, no matter what tears you're shedding right now, no matter what trial you're facing. That is what is promised to the one who lives by humbled faith. So, we have to remember God stands ready to give us wisdom in the midst of these things. We have to remember that God is ready to reward those who seek Him by faith, humble faith that seeks His wisdom. I just want to mention how this was played out and and displayed and demonstrated in the life of our Savior, and then we'll close. Uh, Jesus stood the test Himself. He stood the test Himself in our place. He was raised to life again to give us life. He stood the ultimate test of humble faith. If you remember, He was crying in despair in the garden. And what did He say? If there is any other way, let this cup pass from Me. But not My will, Your will be done. And then He went to the cross, knowing, trusting, believing that His God would be true to His Word. Believing that His Father would make true on the promise to give Him a people a people for his own possession, a people for his own name. He knew that this was a solid thing to this was a solid thing to bank on that God would be true to his promise. The Father is trustworthy beyond comparison. No variation or shadow due to change, James says. Jesus knew this. And so in doing so, he was our example, but he also stood in our place for every time we've blown it and every time we've sought the world's wisdom instead of running to our Father, instead of remembering the sign, ask Dad, He knows. Jesus has made perfect satisfaction for our sins, for all the times we've not sought that wisdom. And because Jesus persevered and lived this life of perfect wisdom and obedience to God, you and I can rely on the wisdom of God when our faith is tested through trials. We can stand the test with our gaze fixed firmly and confidently on the One who has promised us life with Jesus forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being the Father who listens and who gives wisdom without wagging your finger or shaking your head at those who come to you in humble faith. Help us receive the trials we face with humble faith, knowing that it's no test of our personal resolve, but of our humble faith in the one who holds the world in his hands. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.